0: Our scripture reading today will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. And I'll be reading from the uh, New International version. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Harry Houdini is arguably the greatest magician to ever live. And one reason for his great success was the fact that he was a phenomenal escape artist. In fact, he once bragged that there wasn't a jail cell in the world from which he couldn't escape, provided that he could enter the cell in his own clothes and be left to work in private. Now, according to legend, there was a town in England that took him up on that offer. They had just built a new jail cell, and they believed it was impossible to break out of it. So they invited Houdini to come to their town and to put their jail to the test. And he did. Once inside the cell, Houdini took off his belt. In that belt was a a flexible uh, steel rod that he would use to work the lock. Houdini went to work with that rod. He went to work longer than he had ever worked on a lock before. He was frustrated. He was tired. He had spent so much time trying to break out of that cell, and he just couldn't get that lock to open. So finally, in his frustration and exhaustion, he collapsed to the ground. And when he did, his back leaned up against this jail cell, and it flung open. Because it had been unlocked the whole time. I love that story about Houdini. Because I think... We often operate like he did in this moment. When it comes to temptation, I think we assume that escaping from it is harder than it may actually be. And I think that is why God included 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 in the text of Scripture. We just read it, but let's read it again. I want this verse to settle with you for just a moment. I, I want you to, f- to grasp Exactly what God via Paul is communicating to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This verse is important because it reveals two truths about temptation. First, it reveals that there is a limit to how much temptation God will allow us to endure. Paul specifically said, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, your ability may be different than my ability, and my ability may be different than his or her ability. But there is a limit that God will allow. The second thing this verse tells us about temptation is it reveals that every sin is avoidable if temptation is the gateway to sin as james chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 implies and if god provides the way of escape from every temptation then every sin is in fact avoidable see this verse is telling us that god is our ally he's not passively waiting on us to fail spiritually. He's actively trying to help us succeed spiritually. Our problem is that we've accepted that sinning is inevitable, so we've stopped looking for the way of escape. You know, we, we hear Romans chapter 3 verse 23. Romans three twenty three tells us that everyone sins. And oftentimes we interpret that as everyone sins every day. Have you ever heard that communicated in the pulpit, whether by a preacher or by someone praying? Lord, forgive us for we sin every day. Now I'm certain among us there are those who sin every day, but I'm also certain among us there are some people that I look up to spiritually who might go more than one day without sinning. Who might even go a whole week without sinning? There are people that I wonder if they could go a whole month, a whole year without sinning. Is it possible? I believe so. You see, Romans is not telling us that we sin every day. Romans tells us that we sin every lifetime. In other words, everyone sins at some point in their life because it only takes one to condemn you. Right? It only takes one sin to be pronounced guilty of sin. It only takes one sin to reap the consequences eternally of sin. And I think what we fail to do is combine Romans chapter 3 with 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 and understand that while we are sinners and while every one of us has sinned, we are capable of avoiding sin because God is on our side. We just have to start looking for the escape routes. This morning, I want you to turn your attention to one of the most notorious sins in all of the Bible, David's affair with Bathsheba. And I want to es- expose four escape routes that David had. And if he had used them, it would have prevented him from giving in to the temptation of lust. You see, the goal of this study is for it to help you and I recognize that such escape routes exist. And maybe the next time we face temptation, we'll be looking for them. And they will help us avoid giving in to sin. I'm going to frame it this way with the question, how might we escape, excuse me, how might we miss our way of escape? I want to show you how David missed his. We miss our escape route when we fail to obey. Oh, I know that sounds too simple, but let me explain what I mean. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Before we get to the actual sin that occurred between David and Bathsheba, I want you to see what we're told about David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, particularly verse 10, verse 12, and verse 13. This is a few years before his sin, and David has finally been appointed king over all of Israel, and he's taken up residence in Jerusalem. For a time, he was just king over Judah, but now he's full-fledged king, if you will. And we're told this, 2 Samuel chapter 5, and verse 10, that David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. In other words, God made David successful. Skip down to verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. So God made David successful. And verse 12 tells us that over time, David realized that he was a big deal. And David developed... An insatiable desire for women. See, his son Solomon is not the first one to amass a harem of women. He may have taken it to the nth degree with the number of wives and concubines he had, but David did that too. We know at this point in David's career, he had at least seven different wives. And that verse is telling us that he's accumulating more. Now, there's a problem with that. In addition to the fact that we understand polygamy to be against God's desire for the marriage relationship, we also need to acknowledge something that God told the Israelites before they entered the promised land. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16 and 17. That's Deuteronomy chapter 17. 17, Verse 16 and s- not 7. I wrote the wrong verse up there on the screen and on the uh, um, handout. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16 and 17. Here, God acknowledged that the day would come when the Israelites would request a king. So, He gave some specific instructions about what a future king could and could not do. He specifically forbid. Three things for a king. He said he shall not multiply horses for himself in verse 16. In verse 17 he goes on to say, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Three things God forbid a king to increase. His wealth, his silver and gold, his horses, which would be uh, Uh, reflective of military power, and wives. Now, why would God not want a king to multiply these three categories? Well, if he's multiplying silver and gold for himself or horses for his military, then he's indicating that he is reliant on himself and not on his God for his reign. And God's main reason for not wanting a king to multiply wives for himself is because of the negative spiritual influence they would have. God understood that in the marriage relationship, if you married somebody outside of the same faith as you, they could lead you astray. They could cause you to to worship idols. They could have that sort of influence over you. And he did not want that For his people, that's why he forbid them from marrying non-Israelite people. And he did not want that for the rulers of his people. And that's why he instructed them not to multiply wives for themselves. See, here's the deal. This is why this matters. David was successful because of God. David started to realize that he was a success. And as his success increased, so did his ego. David started to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, to use the words of Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. And so he started to bend some of the rules, particularly this rule about multiplying wives. Ultimately, David stopped heeding God's instructions regarding these royal standards. And in so doing, he opened himself up to temptation. In other words, he missed God's first escape route. The first escape route is familiarity with God's word so that you are constantly trying to obey it. David's ignoring God's word here, present in Mosaic law. And you and I miss that first escape route all the time when we're not giving God's Word the time and attention it deserves. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted? The three recorded temptations of Jesus that you can read about in Matthew chapter 4 and the first 11 verses. Every time the devil presented Jesus with a temptation what did Jesus do he quoted God's word in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4 you can see that the devil tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread to satisfy his physical hunger And Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 7, when the devil tempted Jesus to jump off the temple and be rescued by angels to demonstrate his spiritual superiority, what did Jesus do? He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16 saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, when the devil tempted Jesus with a quick and painless access to world dominion, if he would just bow down to him, Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, saying, you shall not worship, or excuse me, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Every time Jesus faced temptation, he turned to God's word. Because he understood that God's first escape route for mankind is His Word. Our familiarity with God's Word is always our first way of escape from temptation. We must never forget that the purpose of God's Word according to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 is to teach, to rebuke, to correct, to train. That means that one's familiarity with God's word can prevent him or her from venturing down the road to sin. You notice Jesus recalled all those passages from memory. When was the last time you memorized a text of Scripture? You know, we we do a lot of that with our children, don't we? We encourage our kids to memorize verses, but then we graduate into adulthood, right? And we no, no longer need to do memory work. Do you ever memorize something for your job? Do you ever memorize something for the convenience of your life? Maybe it's your social security number, your driver's license number, your bank account number. But Do you ever just sit down and say, okay... I need to ingrain some of God's Word in my soul so that I can easily recall it when I need it. At some point in time, we lost the affection for God's Word that we try to teach our children to have. And in so doing, we may have lost our first escape route. We need to uphold God's word, devote ourselves to it with the understanding that in so doing, we give ourselves a way of escape. Because in those moments that temptation threatens, you know what? Your conscience has the ability to recall a passage that tells you, hey, you don't need to go this way. That's your first way of escape. But that's not the only escape route that David ignored here and that you and I ignore. Turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll spend most of our time here for the rest of this lesson. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1 that we read the following. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah but David remained at Jerusalem here's what we're going to find out about David and about ourselves that is that we miss our escape route when we fail to assemble there's some important information revealed in the first verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11 we learn when standard military operations occurred in the ancient Near East. Do you notice, in the spring of the year, they went out. See, the conflict with the Ammonites actually began a chapter earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 10, but was postponed through the winter months and resumed in the spring. We we know from this time period, and, and even more recently than this time period, that war in ancient times in particular was typically conducted in the spring. Why? Better weather conditions. More ample food supply. You can even trace to the American Revolution and see that warring typically didn't take place during the winter months. They usually set up camp and waited out the winter. There is a time of the year when military action was taking place, and right now in the story of 2 Samuel 11, it's that time of the year. The other important detail in this passage is not only do we find out when standard military operations occurred, we also find out who participated in these standard military operations. You notice in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Such a statement seems to indicate that the standard of practice was for the kings to go to battle with their armies. And such seems to be the case here, since the text is contrasting what David is doing with what his military is doing. Did you notice that at the end of verse 1? But David remained at Jerusalem. This text specifically indicates that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, but David remained at Jerusalem. It's very interesting that we're told David sent his men instead of being told that David went. Because if we go back just two chapters, just two chapters, or three chapters I should say, to 2 Samuel chapter 8, we have a detail of David's military conquest over several of his enemies. And we are twice told that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That comes from 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 6. 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 14 as well. The Lord gave him victory wherever he went. But on this occasion, 2 Samuel chapter 11, he didn't go anywhere. He remained. David's decision to remain in Jerusalem is in direct contrast with how God brought about his success in previous military campaigns. So what should we gain from the narrator's inclusion of the phrase, the time when the kings go out to battle? Well, we should understand that David should have been with his troops on the battlefield. And had he been where he was supposed to be, And there would have never been the Bathsheba episode. So by failing to be where he should have been, David exposed himself to a temptation that he should have never experienced in the first place. In other words, he missed his second escape route. Now let's bring that home to us. How does that apply to us? We're not kings at least not in the legal sense. We don't reign over a military. We don't go into battle in the springtime. No, our our battles are usually in the fall on a football field, right? So how does this apply to us? David's not where he should be with his men. He's not assembled with his army like he should be. I think for us, it's not necessary military fighting that we need to think about. We need to just think in terms of assembling with our people. So we think about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, where this instruction is given. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to assemble, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In this passage, the inspired author of Hebrews instructed his readers not to neglect assembling with the body of believers. Did you notice why, though? It was not specifically because his readers would miss out on worshiping God or because they would miss out on important biblical teaching or because they would miss an opportunity to commemorate the Lord's death. The author of Hebrews instructed his readers not to neglect assembling with the saints specifically because they would miss out on stirring up one another and encouraging one another. This passage indicates that, that stirring up one another, encouraging one another has an offensive, offensive, I should offensive function. Not offensive, offensive. Function. It promotes behaviors associated with love and good works. So we're to assemble with fellow believers in order to help each other produce attitudes and actions that are in keeping with the will of God. Not only that, you can go a few chapters earlier in Hebrews to the third chapter, to the 13th verse. Where he says, encourage one another every day. As long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice how often the author of Hebrews says we should encourage one another. He says it should be every day. That implies that he expects frequent interaction between believers. And why is such frequent interaction for the purpose of encouraging one another? Why is that commanded in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13? It's to prevent the hardening of our hearts right there in the text. Encourage one another every day so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, the author of Hebrews is instructing us to interact frequently because our encouraging has a defensive purpose. By encouraging one another, by interacting with one another for the purpose of encouragement, we can help prevent each other from becoming spiritually desensitized. The point is simple. Interacting with each other, assembling with each other, is a way of escape. Because when we come together, and when we fellowship, and when we encourage, and when we stir one another up, you know what we're doing? We're helping us remember what God expects of us. And that might just be the escape route you need the next time temptation threatens Don't miss your escape route. But that wasn't the only one. That wasn't the only way of escape either. David missed his escape route when he began to ignore God's Word. David missed his escape route when he failed to be where he ought to be. And David missed his escape route when he refused to flee. Look now at 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the second and third verse. Here's what we read, 2 Samuel 11 verses 2 and 3. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. So David rises from a nap and goes out on his rooftop patio that overlooked the city of Jerusalem, just to stretch his legs, I guess. Now, in this architectural scenario, it's not abnormal. Eastern monarchs, to quote one scholar, Eastern monarchs frequently built their bedchambers on the second story of the palace and had a door that opened onto what you and I would call a patio roof. This allowed the royal family to have an outdoor space in which they could go and have some degree of privacy from the public by being up high. It also gave them a vantage point to look out over their capital city. So this was not abnormal, nor is it criticized by the author of the text, the inspired author of the text. While strolling on his roof, enjoying his luxurious view, David spots a very beautiful young woman bathing. By all accounts, this seems to be an accidental observation. No guilt is ever assigned by the narrator onto Bathsheba for bathing in view of the palace, nor is there any indication that David was at fault for being on his roof where such a scene could have been observed by him. All the guilt is tied to how David responds to what he sees. See, David responds to seeing Bathsheba by pursuing Bathsheba. The text says that he sent and inquired about her. That means that David did not turn away in embarrassment for having observed something indecent. That means that David did not ignore what he saw out of an effort to maintain the purity of his heart. That means that David transitioned from a state of observation to a state of attraction. He looked at her with lustful, impure intent and then chose to act on it. See, the failure here for David is that he ignored the most basic of escape routes. Fleeing. All he had to do was leave that area. All he had to do upon observing Bathsheba is get away. But David exposed himself to a temptation and once again missed out on one of God's escape routes when he chose to look prolonged and inquire. You realize when it comes to temptation, scripture repeatedly instructs us to respond with flight rather than fight. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14 says, Flee from idolatry. And if you didn't notice, that's the verse that follows immediately after First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that talks about God giving us escape routes. Immediately after. We're told that there's a way of escape from every temptation. We're told to flee from idolatry. Then, of course, there is also 1 Corinthians, excuse me, First Timothy, chapter six and verse 11, where we're instructed to flee these things, which include false doctrines and the love of money. But a flight response is especially essential when it comes to sexual temptation. We are specifically commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 to flee sexual immorality. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22 to flee youthful passions. In other words, Scripture encourages us to respond to temptation, especially sexual temptation, the same way that Joseph responded to the seduction of Potiphar's wife by running away from it. Walter Bradford Cannon is the American physiologist who in 1915 coined the term fight or flight to describe an animal's response to threats. When threatened animals go through a series of physiological reactions that lead to them either fighting the perceived threat or fleeing from the perceived threat. All too often when it comes to temptation... Regardless of the temptation, we think we're strong enough to fight it. We think that all we need to do is don the armor of God, as Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 tells us, and we'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, I'm not trying to undermine those inspired words, but what if one of the schemes of the devil is to get us to fight until we're too exhausted to keep fighting? What if the way of escape was to flee from the scheme to begin with? What if our overconfidence in our ability to fight is the very thing that leads to our spiritual compromise? Now, I do believe there are times where you can fight the temptation and that with that armor of God, you'll be successful. But I also believe that fleeing temptation... Is a guaranteed success when fighting, it may not be. You can never go wrong when you choose the flight response to temptation. Here, David missed an escape route when he failed to flee. Don't miss yours. Here's the thing about David's story. You might think that's the end of it. That's all the escape routes. But there is one more. So turn your attention back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we'll look at verse 3 and 4. And what we'll discover is that David missed his escape route when he refused to listen. So David sitting and inquired about Bathsheba. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliim, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now don't don't miss what's happening here. David inquires about the woman he just observed from his roof, And someone tells him who she is. Did you notice how this unnamed individual framed the answer of her identity? This unnamed individual reminds David that Bathsheba is someone's daughter and someone's wife. As if he's trying to trigger David's conscience. I assume this individual was a servant, and that's why he's unnamed. And it's interesting to me because a servant cannot counsel, correct, or warn a king, but he can inform. And that's what this individual is doing right here. He's informing David of Bathsheba's family and marital status in an effort, I believe, to remind David that she was off-limits. That engaging in a sexual relationship with her would be outside the parameters of God's will. And David knew better. One of David's wives at this point is a a woman named Abigail. A hero in Scripture. A woman who was married to someone else. Someone that David was ready to kill in cold blood. And she stopped David. Not because David was wrong for being angry with this individual, but because she knew that David would sin if he did it. She intervened on behalf of her horrible husband to stop David. And when that husband died on his own, David thought, that's the kind of woman I need to marry but he didn't pursue her while she was off limits. David knew better here. And he has someone, an unnamed someone, an insignificant someone, speak up and inform him in a way to to remind him that this is wrong. And David refused to listen. Listen. He refused to listen to someone who was trying to intervene on his behalf. And as a result, David misses God's final escape route for him. One of the ways God may try to help us be spiritually successful is by bringing people into our lives who can correct us when we're venturing down the wrong path. I think that's why God, via Paul, wrote these words in Galatians chapter six, verse one and two. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. These instructions indicate that if we see that one of our brothers or sisters is erring, then we have a responsibility to help correct them. And though this text specifically addresses an instance in which sin occurs, because it says if anyone is caught in any transgression, even though it may be specific to when one has committed a sin, I understand it as applying to any point in the process that James mentions in James chapter 1 verses 14 through 15, which includes temptation, enticement, desire, and ultimately sin. And the reason I believe we can apply those principles from Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 and 2 to any part of the process from temptation to sin is because when you look through the New Testament, you'll see people correcting others at various points along that spectrum. In Acts chapter 8, Peter corrected Simon the sorcerer when his greedy heart caused him to try and purchase the ability to lay hands on people and impart the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila corrected Apollos when his teaching was based on the limited knowledge of John's baptism. And they thereby prevented him from potentially teaching false or at least incomplete doctrine. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul corrected Peter when Peter hypocritically stopped fellowshipping with Gentile Christians in Antioch as soon as a group of Jewish Christians showed up from Jerusalem. And think about all the times, all the times that Jesus corrected those apostles. Oh, you of little faith, get behind me, Satan. All those times that Jesus had to correct his own apostles. The point is that sometimes our escape route is through the corrective efforts of people who see us going down the wrong road. And David's son Solomon, who he had via Bathsheba eventually, Wisely said it this way. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 33. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. (laughs) Had David done that, he might have found his final escape route. Pictured on the screen is Alcatraz. I've never been there. I want to go there one day. And I'm fascinated by the fact that I want to go there. (laughs) It's a prison! Why is Alcatraz so famous and so popular? For many reasons, but one reason, one reason is because it claims that no prisoner successfully ever escaped from there. You realize as a federal prison, it only operated for 29 years? That's not a very long prison life. It only operated as a federal prison for a very short period of time, yet it housed some of the most famous criminals of all time, like Al Capone. And there's this mystique about it that nobody ever successfully escaped. But some of you know the story from June of 1962 when three men at least, did get outside of the prison. In fact, actually, over the course of its 29 years in operation, 36 prisoners made 14 different escape attempts. Six were shot and killed during their escape. Two drowned. Five are listed as missing and presumed dead by drowning. In June of 1962... Three men named Frank Morris, John England, and Clarence England, the Englands were brothers, they managed to exit the island. They managed to get out of their cells every night for several months through ventilation ducts that they had chiseled out of their walls. They managed to set up a secret workshop in an unguarded service corridor behind their cells where they constructed life preservers and a 6-by-14-foot raft out of raincoats and other supplies they acquired while in prison. They managed to hide their absence from their cells by stuffing towels and clothes under their bedsheets to mimic a body and by placing homemade papier-mâché-like fake heads on their pillows that they had glued hair from the barbershop onto. They managed to exit the prison from that unguarded service corridor through a ventilation shaft that put them out on the roof. They then descended 50 feet down the side of the prison on a vent pipe and climbed two barbed wire fences that I believe were 12 foot high each before making it to the bay where they pulled out their raft, their homemade raft, and inflated it with a concertina. That's a musical instrument if you didn't know. Their escape was not discovered until the next morning, with them having potentially put into the water around 10 p.m. that night. Over the next few days, artifacts such as a homemade paddle, shreds of raincoat material a deflated lifejack made from that same material, and a wallet with contact information for two of the escapees' friends and families. All that was found in and around San Francisco Bay. Nobody knows if those three convicts made it across the bay alive. Obviously, some in positions of high authority claim they didn't. In fact, the FBI closed the case in 1979 saying that they would come to the conclusion that they perished in the waters that night. But over the past several years, there have been many different television programs dedicated to this story. The Discovery Channel, the National Geographic Channel, the History Channel, and PBS have all aired shows that have affirmed the plausibility of of the escapees surviving their watery escape across San Francisco Bay. They've also aired interviews with people that claim to have either seen or communicated with the escapees, as well as pictures and other documents that indicated two of the men lived the remainder of their lives in Brazil. Just a few years ago, one of the supposed escapees sent a letter to the U.S. Marshal's office, claiming that the other two had perished, gave dates, and said that he was battling cancer and that he would return to prison for one year if they would provide him the medical care he needed. They investigated the letter and determined it was inconclusive. Inconclusive. The U.S. Marshal's office is the only agency still pursuing these men. They have not closed the case against them, and warrants still exist for their arrest. In fact, you can go to the U.S. Marshals website and look them up. Do you realize how old these three men would be right now? One would be 94, one would be 90, and the other 89. The fact that a government agency is still looking for these Men tells me that regardless of whether or not they survived their escape from Alcatraz, they at the very least demonstrated that what was once considered impossible was indeed possible. And today, through the life of David, I hope you've seen that the way of escape from temptation that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 talks about is not as impossible as you may have imagined. God provides a way of escape. It's up to us to see it and to take it. See, I know we all battle with temptation. Scripture affirms that reality. We all struggle and are lured by sin. But we have a choice we have the ability to choose whether or not we will give in to that temptation, whether or not we'll be enticed by that temptation, whether or not we'll desire that temptation and bring it to fruition in the form of sin. And all the while, God is providing ways of escape so that we don't have to give in. Today I pointed out four that we can see in David's story, but there could be many more. There may be no end to the number of escape routes that God gives you every time you face temptation. But are you willing to look for them? And more importantly, are you willing to take them? In fact, right now, as we're assembled as a body of believers and as we're talking about this very subject, it may be your escape route right now to recognize that what you're struggling with, you can leave. But you know what's even more important? More important than finding your escape route from temptation is finding your solution for your sin problem. And right now, you have access to that solution. Because your sins may be forgiven right now if you'll confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, if you'll repent of your sins, and if you'll be buried in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of those sins. Right now, your sin problem can be resolved. This morning, we turn our attention to temptation and sin so that we all can do better as we walk through this life. If you have any need to respond to the invitation we offer today, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.